Friday Lunchtime Lectures at the Open Data Institute. Hi everyone, I'd like to welcome you to the ODI's uh, Friday Lunchtime Lecture. Today we will be talking about beneficial ownership and so without further ado, I'd like to introduce Zosia Sikowski. Perfect. So yes, hi, I'm Zosia Sikowski. Thank you for the introduction. Um, and I am the project coordinator for Open Ownership, which is a brand new project to build um, an open register of global beneficial ownership data in the public interest. And I'm going to explain what all of that means in a, in a moment. Um, but in general, I'm here today to tell you about um, how open beneficial ownership data can help curb corruption. Um, so just to quickly introduce our project to you, we are a transparency project and an anti-corruption project. Um, and so we're led by the leading transparency NGOs, including Transparency International, Global Witness, the Web Foundation, the B Team, and Open, Open Corporates, um, with, where I work out of. Um, and our pilot phase, which just began um, late last year, is supported by the UK government's Department for International Developments. Um, so even though we're brand new, um, the folks who have been working on this project have been, uh, have been doing so for many, many years because we're all really concerned about the social cost of anonymous company ownership. Um, and I will tell you more about that um, soon, but first I want to start at the beginning. Um, what do we talk about when we talk about beneficial owners? Well, um, we mean the person who really controls a company. Um, and even more specifically, um, we might be talking about shareholding, um, relative amounts of equity um, held by different individuals. We might be talking about directorships, um, or we're talking about other relationships of control, such as nominee or voting rights agreements. Um, companies can own other companies, um, and in most cases that involve corruption or money laundering. That is the reality. Um, but when we talk about the beneficial owner, we're talking about the real, actual human being at the very end of that chain. Um, so all companies have people behind them. This seems like something very uh, simple and easy to understand about the world, but we don't always know who they are, and that is a big problem. Um, sometimes uh, they're hidden for legitimate reasons. Um, it could be a security concern. Um, but I would say that, that most of the time, um, that's not the case. And people um, open anonymous companies either to um, hide their identity um, in order to reduce their tax load or to launder ill-gotten gains and escape accountability for, for those. Um, so, for instance, um, the World Bank um, released a report a couple of years ago um, about um, illicit funds from bribery and corruption. They found that anonymous shell companies were used 70% of the time to launder that money. Um, and they're also the favored mechanism of criminals, tax evaders, and sanctions busters to hide their identity. Um, and the way the financial system currently works, it is incredibly easy um, for them to stay hidden. So this is an image from um, a great report that Global Witness uh, put out, um, An Idiot's Guide to Anonymous Companies. Um, it shows just how simple it is if you've got some cash um, to go ahead and um, and, and hide yourself and, and launder your ill-gotten gains. Um, so how does all of this work? Well, um, you can just open a shell company in a jurisdiction that does not collect or publish beneficial ownership information. Um, so just a few of these jurisdictions are Delaware in the United States, the state of Delaware, uh, the British Virgin Islands, Cayman Islands, um, Gibraltar, Liechtenstein, 
Switzerland, Canada, so it's not always a beautiful Caribbean island. Um, it can be a lot closer uh, to home. Um, and in some of these countries, you actually have to present more information about yourself to get a library card than you do to open a company. Um, and these companies generally do not have physical structures, um, and that's why we call them shell companies. They're only legal structures where you can move capital um, or even debts um, if you want to make your books look a little bit stronger than they are. And in fact, um, if you guys remember Lehman Brothers, um, this is part of the reason why they collapsed and precipitated the financial crisis of, of 2007, 2008. They just had so many um, offshore companies in such a complex structure, they just didn't know really the state of their accounts anymore. Um, so, you know, if you, if you decide you do want to hide your identity through a shell company, you just um, get an intermediary, such as the now infamous Masak Fonseca, um, to set up a network of companies that, that span jurisdictions, um, and uh, the intermediary will usually also open a bank account for you um, so that you can start spending the money that you've now laundered. Um, and because these companies crisscross jurisdictions, so I, I listed, I think, about eight of them, there, there are several more, um, it's really almost impossible for law enforcement to track down where the money actually ends up. Um, so just to give you an example, um, we are looking here at a picture of um, the daughter of the president of Uzbekistan and her close personal friend and assistant. Um, this is because uh, in, in 2007, I think it was, Swedish telecoms company Telia Sonera um, really wanted to enter the um, Central Asian market um, via Uzbekistan. Um, and what they did is pay $320 million into an anonymous shell company registered in Gibraltar. And this was ostensibly to buy uh, 3G licenses uh, so that they could operate in Uzbekistan. Unfortunately, it turns out you need to buy these licenses from the state. So someone figured out that this was a little bit sketchy. They did some investigating, and it turned out that the company um, that they had paid the money to was owned by uh, this um, close personal friend and assistant of the president's daughter. Um, and it's, it's being said that this is uh, quite clearly an example of um, bribery where the money was laundered through this anonymous shell company um, that it was paid into. So this is just one example. Um, and in countries like Uzbekistan, um, corruption and bribery is so endemic that there's actually a word for the type of state that emerges. We call it a kleptocracy. Um, and it's, it's a state where um, that is really there to serve the interests of the ruling elite. Um, and every time money changes hands in these ways, and I'm sure this is um, certainly not the first or the last time that this has happened in Uzbekistan, it really reinforces those systems. Um, so if you are doing legitimate business, you might use anonymous shell companies to hide your identity for a few other reasons. So um, for contracting processes, um, you might hide your identity um, in order to um, kind of avoid the, uh, the scandal of um, being revealed to be a crony of, um, of the people in charge. Um, you know, who, who is getting a contract, even though you might not be the best person for the job. Um, in business, um, if you are a business, you might be, um, you know, trying to open a new business relationship with, with someone. Uh, but perhaps you've been connected with sketchy business practices in the past, um, and you don't want to get caught. 
Um, maybe you are um, financed by a terrorist organization or you're on a sanctions list. Um, a great way to hide your identity is just to operate via an anonymous shell company. Um, and very commonly, you might open shell companies in order to pay the lowest taxes possible in something called aggressive tax planning. Um, so you would, you would set up the shell company just um, for financing, trading, or holdings in a jurisdiction that has um, very low or no corporate tax. And often these overlap with the jurisdictions where, that don't collect beneficial ownership information. Um, and again, um, we call it offshoring because they, these are strictly legal functions that are completely divorced from the actual operations of the business. So just to give you an example, does anyone here uh, live in South London? Okay, we've got a few people um, raising their hands and, and we are neighbors, just so you know. Um, and so this is a, a picture of um, like a football club house in Lewisham. Um, and what the story behind this is that the council decided to do a compulsory purchase of the land around this football club. Um, the, the football club uh, made a proposal um, to, to use the land in a certain way and keep the football club open, and it, the, the council absolutely refused to look at it. Um, they didn't even consider it. Um, instead, they accepted a bid from a company that um, was owned by two anonymous companies, one in the Isle of Man and one in British Virgin Islands. Um, and it seemed a bit sketchy because this company was pretty clear about the fact that they had never done the kind of work that the council was looking for uh, before. So what happened is the Guardian did some digging um, and they found out that the company that had won the bids was actually founded by the former mayor of Lewisham. So as you can imagine, this probably gave him a little bit of, of an advantage <laughs> in this process. Um, and I, I bring this up because um, it's important to remember that um, these sorts of things don't just happen in places like Uzbekistan, they also happen very, very close to home. Um, and just another example, um, this is non-anonymous, um, but uh, we do have um, Google's Dutch sandwich as, uh, as an example of how um, large multinational corporations will use shell companies in order to um, reduce their tax burden. Um, and what Google does is basically just take advantage of, of various uh, tax laws within different jurisdictions around the world, as well as the tax treaties between those jurisdictions um, to uh, eventually move their corporate profits into a tax haven like uh, Bermuda, where corporate tax is 0%. And so I think effectively they pay something like 6% of uh, tax on their corporate profits through this process. And as this headline says, um, they save $3.6 billion um, doing that. Um, and this is actually completely legal, um, but there are a lot of companies that um, do cross the line and it's very easy for them to do that, um, not just because of the, of the logistics um, and how simple they are, um, the way I just described, but also because it's, it's so commonplace and it's completely business as usual. And ultimately this benefits the corporates, but not the people in the communities where they operate. So. Um, and that's really why we're here and why we are working on this issue because um, the bottom line is that anonymous company ownership, which facilitates corruption, tax avoidance, crime, and so on, comes with a social cost that we just cannot bear. Um, what exactly does this look like? Well, low tax revenue means underfunded schools, hospitals, social services in general. 
Um, developing company, countries are losing uh, $200 billion annually on tax avoidance, while OECD countries lose $400 billion a year. And you know, it seems like the OECD number is obviously a lot higher, but uh, when you take into account proportion of GDP, the developing countries are being hit much, much harder by this. Um, and uh, the amount of money held in offshore shell companies is estimated to be as much as $32 trillion. And again, as I mentioned, this is mostly completely untaxed, right? Um, and um, as I mentioned, there's a lot of uh, corruption in um, contracting processes. Um, so these are the processes by which uh, you know, the state will um, commission the building of a new hospital or, or new roads or a new highway or something like that. Um, and um, what results uh, when the wrong person gets the job is bad hospitals, bad highways, bad roads. Um, and in fact, the World Bank has done investigations into corruption um, in their procurement processes, and, and these are the things they find. Hospitals with absolutely non-functional electrical systems, roads that are falling apart, things like that. Um, so how do we tackle this, right? Well, um, we think it's by bringing beneficial ownership data out into the open. Um, first, because it's simply riskier to lie in public. Um, not only does it show that you intended to hide your identity, it also means you might get caught. Um, so, you know, you guys are all open data people. You probably know um, about the many eyes principle and the idea that lots of people will be using this data on a daily basis as part of their jobs. Um, and they might actually have skills, for instance, local knowledge, language, language capability, and things like that, that the most um, skilled analysts that we could hire won't have, right? So they'll be able to spot inconsistencies that we might not be able to. Um, and in addition, if it's available as open data, you can easily combine it with other data sets. Um, I wouldn't know, but I'm guessing it's pretty easy to, it's pretty hard to lie consistently. Uh, and so as soon as you make this data comparable with other data sets, you begin to um, highlight those inconsistencies. Uh, additionally, hopefully you guys can see this, um, having beneficial ownership as open data allows civil society to play an important watchdog role. So um, I want to give you guys an example of a data dive that um, Global Witness, Open Corporates, and Datakind did um, with the UK's beneficial ownership data um, at the very end of last year. Um, and they found lots and lots of interesting stuff. So some of it was just tech issues. So here we have an image it's a word cloud of all of the different, all of the misspellings of the word British um, because people who submitted data to the register were required to input their nationality. And of course, it was a free text field. And so this happened. <laughs> and there, are, there, are over five, there were over 500 ways um, to report your nationality as British, which boggles the mind a little bit. But there we have it. Um, and there are also some things that they found that really cut to the heart of why this data is being collected in the first place. So they found that um, almost 3,000 companies listed, listed an offshore company as their beneficial owner. And this is actually not allowed um, according to the UK legislation. Um, and they found that 76 uh, beneficial owners in the register have the same names and birth month and year as people on the US sanctions list. So it's not, we don't have enough information to definitely identify that these are the same people, but all of this stuff has been passed on to Companies House um, for further investigation, and that would obviously be impossible if this data wasn't open, 
And it would even be impossible if this data was behind a paywall. It would just be too expensive to do this kind of analysis. Um, so overall, having the data out in the open helps us see where the holes are um, and where we can focus our efforts on legislating beneficial ownership transparency. Um, and it, it really highlights the loopholes that um, people who are trying to hide their identity will use. Um, so we start moving away from uh, the excuse of business as usual. Um, and we start making people who are suspicious look actually suspicious. And that's really important and um, a kind of a behavioral disincentive, um, I think, to, to continue your um, unethical practices. And, you know, this is really about building a norm. And we want to move away from the idea of companies as people um, towards the idea that companies have responsibilities um, towards in the communities that they operate um, based on the fact that they benefit from public resources. Um, and we want to move away from this idea of the shadowy world of corporate finance and towards more corporate transparency. Um, and so just to sum up, um, we really want uh, beneficial ownership data to be open because it improves data quality it allows civil society to um, play the watchdog role that um, they crucially play. Um, and all of these things help us build a new norm of corporate transparency. Um, and this is a, kind of a preventative measure um, for more of these types of crimes and, and more and, uh, you know, against the, the social cost of anonymous company ownership. Um, it's also the people who use this data every day who are going to build this norm. So um, just to quickly um, review who these people are. Um, first of all, civil society investigators, people um, you know, like the journalists who uncovered the um, scandal in Uzbekistan, um, who need to be um, chasing up these leads and, and um, you know, uncovering instances of wrongdoing, they need it. Um, the public sector needs it uh, for contracting to see the links between different companies that um, maybe did a bad job or are related to politicians. Um, tax officers need it in order to trace the flows of corporate profit and see where the money actually ends up. Um, law enforcement needs it uh, so, that they, so that they can also figure out where money ends up and um, hopefully collects uh, stolen assets. Um, and for corporate due diligence. So um, corporates are already collecting a lot of this, this information because they really need to know who they're getting into business with and who, who their partners are. Um, and um, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But um, basically, each time someone uses this data and gets a result that they need, we are, we are building the case um, for, for um, more beneficial ownership transparency and really building this norm of corporate transparency. Um, so if you were to uh, need to find out who the beneficial owner of a, of a company is, um, a lot of the time, um, in countries that don't have beneficial ownership registers, you would find that information in a document like this. Um, so this is a, a company financial statement, and it's actually for a UK company. So um, these days, you could just go on the PSC register and find it. But for argument's sake, um, who can tell me who the beneficial owner of this company is? Yeah, that was really fast, <laughs> actually. So it's Peter Simon. He's down there at the bottom. Right, right. Um, so he's, he's down here at the bottom, and we know that he controls the company through something called the Beauchamp Trust. Uh, there's probably more companies in the, in the network, um, but we're not seeing those. 
Um, and of course, if I tried to click on Peter Simon's name, I would have no idea what else he's involved in. Um, I would have no idea what the nature of his control is. Literally nothing would happen <laughs> if I clicked on his name. Um, so not only is this incredibly cumbersome, it's also kind of failing to capture some of the most important information. Um, because, um, as I've uh, explained, um, the most interesting and problematic cases are going to span jurisdictions um, and, and crisscross various different countries. Um, and so that's why we really need a networked solution for these, for these issues of the social cost of anonymous company ownership. Um, that solution is the Open Ownership Register. So um, this is the project I work on, and, and uh, we're, we're developing it now, um, hopefully launching it in March. Um, and it's going to link data from multiple jurisdictions and industries, as well as data that's self-disclosed by corporates. So they're playing a really big role um, in kind of the, the rollout of this register, and I think the beneficial ownership transparency movement in general. Um, so that's really going to help avoid the data siloing that you get when um, the information is contained just on discrete national registers and, uh, and you can't see um, the networks of control um, that are kind of the key piece of information. Um, so it's also going to serve as a technical solution and, and you know, as we develop it, we are working out all sorts of complicated problems about um, how to collect beneficial ownership information and how to publish it. Um, and there are a lot of countries who have um, committed to uh, publishing um, beneficial ownership data. Um, and there are some that are, have even taken the next step and are starting to work on the legislation that will make that uh, mandatory. Um, so these countries um, can use our platform um, and our data standard that we're working on rather than, than recreate the wheel. Um, and additionally, we are hoping that um, governments, um, MDBs, businesses might uh, integrate the register with their due diligence systems so that companies that they're collecting information from can just go ahead and enter it onto the register. The MDB, the government, or the business will have it, and it'll also be public. Um, and again, as I mentioned, it's, it's important that um, the register will allow companies to self-submit their data, uh, and we actually have a, a really active um, group of uh, lots of big, interesting private sector folks, um, a big extractives company, pharmaceuticals company, um, lots of um, kind of client services uh, people, um, and they are working with us on um, uh, making the register work for them and hopefully integrating it with their due diligence systems. Um, so as I mentioned, we are also developing the first open data standard for beneficial ownership. Um, and that will have, um, obviously, the, the huge benefit of making this data interoperable globally, which it really needs to be, so that we can capture um, all of these relationships. And, you know, I want to mention that um, we are governed um, by civil society and operated in the public interest. Um, so our only uh, goal is to alleviate the cost of anonymous company ownership, and that, that's the parameter along which we make all of our decisions. Um, so I just want to show you a few mock-ups of the platform. These are old, um, and we are working on the real thing now, but I just want to give you an idea of the functionality it'll have. Um, so here's a front page where you could either search um, for a beneficial owner or for a company, um, or if you're a corporate, you could submit your own information. Um, that's a search results page. 
Um, so here's a record. So um, in this particular instance, Joe Wilson owns a company both in the United States and in the UK. And you could see both of those companies here on one page, where again, if um, you were searching uh, via national registers, you would have to go to both of those registers. Um, and on the right side, we have a, a panel of information here from Open Corporates of the company information. Um, and here is a, a form um, for what um, submitting beneficial ownership information might look like. So, um, you know, it would be very simple, very easy, um, lots of data validation so that we, we don't run into the problems that the UK PSC register has. Um, and, you know, allowing corporates to really um, kind of take, take their place as uh, hopefully some of the leaders of this movement for corporate transparency. Um, so I, I really think this, that this is the tool that can help us realize the potential of beneficial ownership information um, for um, uh, pr you know, providing real usability to people and building that new norm of corporate transparency. So um, just to uh, close, um, can beneficial ownership data help curb corruption? I think the answer is absolutely yes. Um, first of all, it makes it harder and riskier for unethical corporates to lie. Um, and um, as we talked about, it allows civil society to play an important watchdog role. It makes it easier for government to um, do law enforcement and, and um, for tax officers to chase down leads um, and for businesses to ensure that they're only working with people who are ethical and who are clean. Um, and uh, both of these work together, um, I think, to help us build this new norm of corporate transparency that is so important. Um, so uh, really, um, all of this means that open beneficial ownership data um, is just a powerful tool for curbing corruption, tax avoidance, um, and money laundering, and beginning to alleviate that social cost uh, that we discussed. Um, so um, I would be remiss if I didn't end with a call for people to get involved. And there are lots of ways for everyone to get involved. Um, if you are a potential user, um, if you are a business owner, we, we do need people to test the register. Um, and you can either sign up to do that by um, going to our website, openownership.org, or by coming to talk to me. Um, and please spread the word. There are a lot of people that need this, um, whether they're in governments um, that are implementing their own beneficial ownership registers, or, um, or if they're corporates um, struggling with their due diligence processes, um, they need to hear about this. Uh, this is a tool that they could use. Um, so please do connect us if you know someone like that. And you can do that by emailing me. Um, and if you come up to me after the talk, I'm happy to give you a business card. So. Uh, that's it for me, and I'm looking forward to your questions. Thanks so much for that. Uh, does anyone have any questions? Hi there. That was, was on, yeah. That was really interesting. It was fascinating stuff. Um, I would have thought that in order to pressure governments into bringing around the constitutional or political changes, especially for small units like the Cayman Islands and British Virgin Islands, mm. that you might require for like regional blocks to sort of come together and then apply pressure. So like the EU, I believe, has tried uh, yeah. talking about this in the past. Um, do you think that uh, the UK's current trajectory, which is to leave a regional block and to threaten to set itself up as a tax haven, maybe kind of damages the prospects of, of that kind of um, leverage and, and international cooperation? 
luckily, the UK is not alone <laughs> in this. Um, so um, there, there are actually quite a few um, mostly loose, uh, you know, um, kind of uh, fading into more concrete coalitions um, of countries that are working on this. Um, we are, um, you know, coordinating one um, via the Open Government Partnership, um, along with the UK government, actually, but also the French government. Um, so, um, you know, I think po it, politically it might be hard to make the case that, that um, other people should be, uh, you know, changing their, their corporate uh, transparency laws and stuff like that if um, the UK does become a tax haven, but um, hopefully that won't happen. Um, and um, in the meantime, I have to say, you know, we work with them quite closely. We are, of course, funded by UK governments. Um, they are um, very committed to this and really interested in, in using their political influence to uh, move this agenda forward all over the world. Okay. Any more questions? Who fills those uh, register forms in? Uh, is it the public or? The people of uh, the government or the corporations? Is it like Wikipedia or? Um, so in terms of what would be on the register, um, our, our open ownership register, uh, we would collect data from um, national registers. So, um, and I'm not sure of the exact kind of process by which they verify who is submitting that data, but it is something that, that companies are, are required to do. So it would be somebody within that company or an accountant or something like that hired by that company <laughs> that would be submitting the information. Um, I, it's possible we might, um, you know, somewhere down the line include data that comes from, from leaks. Um, the nice thing about, um, you know, having uh, something organized along open data principles is that everything is going to be provenanced and it's all going to come with information about our confidence in that data. So, um, you know, if it was from a regulatory source, it would be quite high confidence. If it was from, you know, uh, the Panama Papers, it might be slightly lower uh, because we might not be able to verify it as much as we would want to. So, does that answer your question? Yeah, I mean, for example, Wikipedia, every, every one of us used that and it's mm. pretty accurate, right? So I think yeah. that should also be, um, shouldn't be overseen because uh, if we don't give people in charge of those kind of things to, you know, uh, whistleblowing, mm -hmm. then it's not going to be that transparent, uh, I assume. Yeah, I think you're right. And um, I, I think that, um, you know, part of the idea of having this information out in public is that uh, people will be able to use it um, and they will be able to see if someone has lied um, and, and they'll be able to, you know, there will be a mechanism for them to, to tell us um, that something's off about this data. Um, and so we, we absolutely agree um, that uh, we need public input and we need, um, we, need, we need the many eyes on this information, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, I mean, that, those are all very good points, and obviously the need for the data increases if it's a high-risk or emerging market. Yeah. Um, what is your country coverage like? Um, right now? <laughs> um, so uh, there's, there's not a lot of data out there where that's 
part of what we're working on. Um, so the only uh, country that, that has like a central beneficial ownership register is the UK. Um, so that data, when we release uh, the, um, the MVP of our register, um, that's going to be some of the first data on there. Uh, but also um, the Extractives Industry Transparency Initiative um, they are, um, they have been collecting data, um, in, through their member countries. There are, you know, dozens, 50 or something like that, um, on, um, the beneficial ownership of extractives companies in those, um, in those jurisdictions. And so, uh, we have done the work to transcribe all of that data because it's all in PDFs and a lot of it is like narrative and different languages and things like that. Um, and that's also going to be available on the MVP of the register. So there are a few different sources um, to get the data. Um, the EU, um, it may not mandate public uh, beneficial ownership registers, but um, I think recently they were considering mandating it for the fisheries industry. So the more data we get on there, the more, the more pieces of the chain we can see. So, yeah. Oh, good. Um, hi. Okay, so we've, we've got a few questions from um, viewers online. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Arturo Rivera has asked, what potential do you see when mixing uh, beneficial ownership data with linked data? How can this help public sector watchdogs? Link data? Yeah, so data sets linked together. Oh, um, sure. So, um, I mean, one of the key data sets, and unfortunately, most of the time this is proprietary, but uh, politically exposed persons data set. Um, are very uh, useful <laughs> to be linked with something like this. Um, you know, um, both from a civil society perspective, if, if you know someone has been um, doing business with a company owned by a, a PEP, um, that's very interesting. Um, and from a due diligence perspective, um, if you are considering, you know, entering into a partnership with a business, you want to make sure they're not being owned um, by a politically exposed person. Um, so that's just one example, and I think that, you know, um, government spending data um, is another um, interesting connection, and, and there are lots of connections to be made there. Great, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, and another from Vivin Baduitz, who asks, do you expect legal issues if someone discloses information that, uh, that's legally protected in their country? Um, so... Um, Basically, we are, um, as far as we, as far as our planning goes, um, whatever is being disclosed to us will will have to be, you know, um, compliant with the laws in in their jurisdictions. Um, the only case in which, um, you know, we might uh, run across a problem is when corporates are self-submitting um, their data. Um, I think in most cases, and I'm not a lawyer, so um, I could be wrong, and maybe if there are people watching who are lawyers and know, I would be very curious <laughs> to um, hear what you think. But um, I think in most cases, if um, consent has been given um, by the person whose data is being revealed, it's, it's okay. Great, thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, just a couple more. Sure. <laughs> These are quite technical. Um, is disambiguation of people across companies slash jurisdictions done only using name plus date of birth? In the, in the UK PSC register, um, yes, yes. Um, I, there, there are other um, means being explored, and that's actually something that uh, we're looking at as part of the, um, the development of the data standards. So if the person who has asked that question would like to um, feed in <laughs> to that work, then uh, we would be very interested to have them, and they can go to the website and, um, and uh, fill out a brief form and let us know. Brilliant, thank you. Mm -hmm.
-hmm. One more. Uh, where would be the best place to plug into the process so we can consume whichever data becomes available as soon as possible? Mm. Um, in t I, I'm assuming that means uh, ha getting involved and, and staying up to date. So um, the, the best thing to do right now is to sign up for our mailing list and also follow us on Twitter. Um, and we will be, um, uh, the, launch, uh, the public launch will be in, in the beginning of March. Um, uh, if you want to get involved before that, um, the, we do have public sector, uh, private sector, and civil society working groups. Um, and they will be the people testing the data so, um, or in testing the platform. So um, if you're interested in that, please do go to the website and sign up. Thank you. Um, so I wondered um, who you envisage using the data and how you envisage them using it. So you mentioned, for example, it's beneficial to civil society. Yeah. And you mentioned the, um, the instance where The Guardian had done the report on the, the football club. Mm -hmm. um, so... Uh, yeah, so who within civil society do you envisage actually using the data and um, how is it that they're going to sort of access it and then are they, will they have like a big data dump and then they're going to do their own analysis on it mm. or are you going to provide guidance or you mm. yourselves will be doing some analysis? Um, good question. Um, I think within civil society uh, there are a lot of um, organizations that do investigations. Um, Global Witness, who, which is on our steering group, is one of them. Um, there are also a lot of journalists um, who, who do investigations um, who I think would use this data. Um, and in terms of how, it kind of depends what you're doing. Um, if you're interested in, in one particular case in one particular company, you might, country, you might not need a, a data dump. Um, but if you're interested in, in tracing something more systemic, then you probably do. Um, and it will be open, um, available under an open license. Um, so uh, yeah, you can, you can download it and, and use it however you like if you're civil society. Yeah. Any more questions? No? That's it. Well, thank you very much for coming in today. That was very educational. Um, if any of you missed any of it or would like to watch it again, it will be made available on the ODI website. Um, but, and if you've got any questions, please keep sending them through or yes. we'll touch you afterwards. Sounds good. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.